Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Today, our guest is Balin Linekin, and he's got a brand new book out. It's called Biting the Hand That Feeds Us, How Fewer, Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. Now, Balin is an adjunct professor at George Mason University Law School and an adjunct uh, faculty member at American University, um, along with faculty from Harvard Law School, UCLA Law School, and other law schools. Uh, Balin is one of the seven founding board members of the New Academy of Food Law and Policy, and I am thrilled to have him on the show today to discuss this important topic with us. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Balin, and congrats on your new book. Thanks so much, Jill. I'm excited to be here and and also, uh, I guess it's obvious, uh, excited about my new book. Well, as you should be, and as I was reading it, I was learning so much. Even though we've covered sustainable food topics many times on Go Green Radio, you really come out at it from a unique perspective that I think our listeners are going to really appreciate. I think that a lot of Americans, you know, when they think of the USDA and the FDA, they look to those agencies to enforce regulations that keep our food safe. Um, but your book discusses instances in which food safety rules often hurt sustainable producers, and they not—they are not necessarily making food any safer. Tell our listeners about what happened when the USDA forced an award-winning, sustainable um, Denver Solmiera um, to close because the company, which passed every agency food safety inspection, refused to add nitrates um, or nitrites to its food. Talk to us about that example. Sure. So this was a few years ago. Uh, a guy, Mark Dinitis, who I've uh, come to know uh, pretty well uh, through social media and email and Facebook, but who I've, I've never actually met, um, he uh, was for years an instructor at Johnson and Wales, which is a uh, you know one of the leading culinary schools uh, in this country, and he's been making uh, salumi you know, uh, sausages uh, to oversimplify for several years. Um, and he taught food safety courses. Uh, he was on the I think the American Lamb Board, uh, their advisory board. You know, this guy is an expert at what he's doing. Um, and so he launched uh, a, a salumi uh, called uh, Il Mondo Vecchio, which translates from Italian, uh, where his ancestors are from, uh, to uh, the old world. And so he wanted to use old world methods while following uh, new world rules uh, to make a safe, tasty, sustainable salumi. And he, he sourced his, uh, his meat. You know, he bought heritage breed pigs from uh, a local sustainable producer in Denver that is certified organic and only sells its food within, I think, a 50-mile radius of its farm. Uh, he got uh, you know, salt and whatnot from, uh, from an ancient seabed in Utah. You know, he did pretty much everything right uh, and certainly followed all the USDA's rules. There were inspectors on site when he was making food. And he passed all of their inspections, and everything was wonderful. He he won awards during his first year in business, but unfortunately, that turned out also to be his only year in business um, because the USDA decided that uh, his uh, refusal to add nitrates and nitrites 
suddenly was was an untenable thing uh, based on their rules, and so they ordered him either to uh, to add nitrates and nitrites um, or to close down. And uh, he's a very very uh, smart and principled guy, um, and he rather than uh, doing what he felt would be lying to his customers, uh, he decided that he had to shut down. That's that's unbelievable and so unfortunate. And I know that that's not an isolated incident. And that's what's so alarming about, you know, reading your book and the many examples in which, um, you know, really credible operations um, and food production uh, companies are in, jeopardized for, you know, you, rules and regulations that don't necessarily make the food any more nutritious or any safer. Um, you know, your book cites another example when the FDA sought to eliminate the donation of spent grains by beer brewers to America's farms, uh, where millions and millions of tons are used as animal feed. And that was even though the agency admitted that this, you know, ancient practice has never resulted in any human or animal illness. I'd like for you to talk to us more about that case. So this was uh, a year or two ago. The um, the FDA uh, really sort of without warning and without uh, precedent and, and certainly, uh, as I discuss, uh, without really any logical basis, um, decided that it was going to effectively regulate America's brewers. And I'm talking about the smallest craft brewery up the street from you and, you know, Miller and, and Bud and, and the Giants the same way. And it was going to regulate them as pet food manufacturers um, if the FDA's uh, veterinary uh, food uh, arm was going to do this. And it was because, again, they, they sell uh, spent grains or donate spent grains, uh, as you noted, millions of tons of it to America's brewers. Uh, I'm sorry, to America's farmers. I think mm-hmm. something like 8% of America's dairy cattle feed comes from spent grains. And this is a great way to reduce food waste, which I know we'll, we'll talk about, get into in more detail later. Um, but it was a food safety thing. The, the uh, FDA claimed that uh, this practice was, was worrying and could cause illness. Um, and so you saw groups like the Brewers Association, which represents uh, America's craft brewers, and the Beer Institute, which represents the, the big beer companies, uh, writing to the FDA in, in almost incredulous fashion saying, you know, we brew beer, we don't manufacture pet food and we're donating or selling this uh, food to farmers because it's a great way both to reduce waste but also um, to get, you know, cheap, uh, sustainable food to to dairy cows and, and other uh, animals, uh, livestock. So the FDA eventually backed down when it was forced to admit that, in fact, no one, uh, person or animal, had ever been harmed by uh, spent grains in the something like 10,000 years uh, <laughs> of, our, of our history where these, these spent grains have been, uh, have been eaten by, uh, by animals. Right. And, and just to think about the, the millions of tons of food waste that uh, disallowing such a practice would create um, is, is mind-boggling, particularly when, you know, we're really looking for things that, mimic the circular economy model where, you know, somebody's spent uh, byproducts become somebody else's raw material. And we're seeing that, you know, in some of the smarter manufacturing uh, areas and and business parks of the world. Um, You know, China has actually made it part of their national 
policy to try and create these easy ways for manufacturing operations to use a circular economy model. But uh, this is, as you said, something that's been going on for thousands of years of human history, um, where the, the byproduct of an agricultural process would become the, the raw material for livestock um, breeding. So, you know, gosh, that just doesn't make any sense to get in the middle of that. But there you go. Another example. Um, you know, a few weeks ago on Go Green Radio, we had winners of the American Cheese Society's annual contest on the show. And these folks that were our guests were also certified as animal will, welfare approved products. And we had a sidebar discussion about artisan cheeses. And your book discusses how the FDA attempted to ban artisanal cheese products um, when it claimed that ripening cheese on wooden boards, which is another ancient, popular, and safe practice, was not permitted. So talk to us about this issue. Sure. Um, and I should note, I guess, uh, as pertains both to, to brewing and to artisan cheeses, uh, just because something's been done for 10,000 years doesn't mean that it's inherently uh, good or safe. But in the case of spent grains, and, and now we'll talk about cheese, uh, these practices are safe. And so, uh, you know, certainly uh, the FDA cracking down on someone who's doing something that's safe uh, under the guise of food safety makes little to no sense. But the, um, the cheese crackdown, so yeah, as you mentioned, uh, you know, people have been ripening cheese on wooden boards. It helps uh, to create that sort of firm rind on the outside of cheese that we're all familiar with. Um, and there are alternatives. You can age on plastic or on uh, stainless steel. But uh, I, I quote in the book a guy who's an artisanal cheesemaker, and, and he said that, uh, you know, that that can essentially not create a rind and it can turn the cheese into mush and a bacteria laden mush at that. So the alternatives aren't uh, necessarily any better. Um, mm-hmm. And what happened uh, in the case of, uh, of wooden boards was that the FDA found in fact that uh, a cheesemaker in New York, uh, that their wooden boards had been found to have some listeria on them. And this is a great uh, you know, point for me to make here, which is that when the FDA finds listeria, which can sicken or kill people, uh, it absolutely should step in and act. You know, I'm not saying that uh, food safety regulations are, are all bad. They're certainly not. Um, inspections and ensuring that you know, the food that we eat uh, doesn't contain harmful pathogens that can sicken us or, or worse, uh, you know, that's, that's a great way for the FDA to, uh, to serve the public. And, and in this case, they stepped in and they stopped that one uh, you know, bad actor, let's say, or a person who, who wasn't uh, achieving good results from, uh, from selling more. Perfect. Great. But the FDA then applied it to every artisanal cheesemaker um, in a guidance letter saying, you know, we've never permitted this practice of, of ripening cheese on wooden boards, and we're not about to start now. Uh, and, you know, the, the cheesemakers across the country, including people from the American Cheese Society, were aghast. You know, they had invested tens of millions of dollars, many of them, uh, in these wooden boards. And, you know, they were hoping to expand many of them. And, and this practice, which, uh, you know, was what they were counting on to continue doing, the FDA backed down to a lesser degree here and said they're going to look into the matter, but they'll permit the practice for, for the time being at least. Well, and that's one of those examples of legislating to the minority. You know, you have one case of something gone awry and then kind of going high into the right with with regulations to cover everybody who, you know, 
may not have had a problem for many, many years or any problems ever at all. Um, We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to discuss with Balin. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, uh, our guest today is Balin Linekin, and he has a brand new book out that is really, really fresh and unique. Um, we've talked about food laws and sustainable food movements many, many times on Go Green Radio. But his book, which is called Biting the Hands That Feed Us, how Fewer, smarter laws would make our food system more sustainable. Really comes at it from a very different perspective. And I'm so glad to have him on the show today. You know, Bail and I love my local farmer's market, and they are becoming a bigger and bigger trend, even in densely populated urban areas. And your book covers some very strict farmer's market regulations in Mississippi, as one example, which make it nearly impossible for farmers in the state to sell meat at farmer's markets. Tell us more about that and what you recommend for changing those regulations. Sure. I'm happy to talk about that. So uh, I actually spoke in uh, Louisiana recently and I talked about these regulations and there were several uh, people from uh, who have uh, jobs in agriculture and agriculture extension in the audience. And when I discussed this, they just sort of covered their faces uh, in shame and just nodded in agreement uh, as I was talking. Um, uh, It's a, a ridiculous set of rules. So in Mississippi, if you're a farmer of any size, you must transport your, let's say, steaks uh, 
um, from your farm to a farmer's market in a refrigerated truck, and the refri refrigerated truck has to be, the refrigeration has to be operational during the transport, but it also has to be operational during the farmer's market itself, and you have to keep your uh, your meat, you know, chilled in the truck that way. Um, and, you know, if you're a producer who has hundreds or thousands of pounds of meat that, you know, you, you're making a lot of money um, and you can afford a truck, then that's a great idea. Uh, but if you're, if you want to sell a dozen steaks uh, at a farmer's market, uh, particularly a small one, you know, who needs to bring a thousand pounds of meat to a small farmer's market, um, then it's, it's untenable. Um, you just can't do it. And there are easier and, and uh, less costly ways uh, to transport meat, for example, in a bucket of ice, uh, which you can monitor the temperature just as well as you can a refrigerated truck. And it's absolutely just as safe. Uh, you know, if it's 15 degrees out, then you, you shouldn't need a refrigerated truck at all because you know what? The air temperature will keep your meat uh, chilled. And so it's these sorts of rules that, that I talk about in the book that particularly food safety rules that mandate a particular process rather than mandating good outcomes mm -hmm. uh, that make no sense. It doesn't make any sense. Although, you know, I can understand why farmers markets would want to kind of cover their backside a little bit with some of those regulations. But at the same time, um, there are other ways to ensure meat safety besides just essentially eliminating it uh, from the product selection or the product menu at the, the farmer's markets. You know, we talk about public policy a lot on Go Green Radio, and your book illuminates the relationship that big food companies have with our federal public policymakers. Talk to us about the influence that big food companies exert over food-related legislation and regulation. So uh, chapter two of my book uh, is called, uh, and I'm using finger quotes here, um, uh, it, essentially it's big food and big government and how they work together. Um, and you know, the term big food is uh, often uh, thrown around by those on the left and the term big government is often thrown around by those on the right. Uh, but regardless, that's effectively what's happening. It's um, you know, large uh, entrenched players trying to influence the government and, they, and they're certainly... Uh, successful. The Food Safety Modernization Act was one good example of that, uh, but there are plenty of other uh, rules. Farm subsidies, which uh, always uh, benefit large producers, or almost always benefit large food producers. Uh, and it's, you know, the people with the power uh, end up influencing, uh, influencing legislation. And it's always uh, at the extent uh, or to the detriment of their smaller competitors. And just this week, I mean, as a perfect example, we learned that Bayer, um, you know, everybody knows Bayer Aspirin, but of course they do more than that, but they plan to buy Monsanto. And I would love to know your thoughts on that because, you know, there are a lot of uh, folks who watch what Mon Monsanto does very closely. Uh, talk to us about that relationship with Bayer and Monsanto. So, I mean, I may have a different uh, take on this. I mean, I think that uh, the idea that Bayer is buying Monsanto or, you know, if the shoe was in the other foot, if Monsanto were buying Bayer, I don't necessarily think that has a, a ton of impact on, you know, what you and I eat. I think that if you have a particular set of food choices that you care about most, um, that 
that sale will probably impact you very little. And if you think about farmers, um, those who plant GMO crops, it may, uh, I guess, could drive up the price of, you know, that they're paying for seeds. But as far as, uh, and, and or pesticides, um, but as far as conventional farmers, certified organic farmers, and those farmers who can't afford uh, to get, uh, to pay for organic certification, but you use organic methods, um, I don't expect the, uh, the impact to be uh, that great or, or even uh, noticeable. Mm-hmm. Speaking of organics, your book mentions that um, since the USDA took over the labeling of organic foods, and that was something that was a result of an outcry from a lot of consumers who wanted standardization, you know, that for a while there, it was kind of the wild, wild west of food labeling when it came to organics, and people didn't really know what they were getting when they saw uh, sort of a made-up label for organics. And so the USDA took that over. But some of the biggest supporters of organic food have also been some of the harshest critics of the USDA's labeling um, rules. And that has really caused a lot of controversy. Help our listeners understand why this is occurring. Sure. I mean, we can go back to the beginning of the sort of organic food labeling movement in the early 1970s when California certified organic farmers and Oregon TILF were the first uh, certifying bodies to, you know, sort of uh, put an organic seal on food. And that was a way for people to know that it, you know, that those, uh, those seals meant something and they, they could understand pretty easily what that meant. Um, and there was fraud, uh, and it wasn't necessarily uh, amongst uh, producers who were certified by groups like CCOF, um, but it was people who were claiming that their food was organic, and you know, it wasn't. Um, and so Congress reacted uh, in the 90s, and, and the rules didn't actually go into place with the USDA until, I think, 2000. Um, but since that time, and I, I refer to a Washington Post expose on uh, organic uh, labeling and the organic board, which meets every year to, uh, you know, to sort of add or subtract things from uh, the definition, their definition of organic. It's become sort of this like annual right of controversy. Um, and I think I give the example in the book uh, that there was an artificial uh, preservative that uh, the, you know, several lower-level USDA employees had recommended against uh, being an improved organic ingredient in baby food, um, and they were overridden by their supervisor, um, who decided that uh, that this you know artificial uh, ingredient could be considered organic. And that's just one of many uh, examples of, of how uh, the organic certification. Uh, has sort of run afoul of what its original intent was. And you get groups like the Organic Consumers Association and the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition and others, um, Professor Marion Nessel, who've been very critical of what comes out of the USDA. Yep, she's actually been a guest on Go Green Radio, and we talked about that quite a bit. And I, I'm a big fan of all of her books, um, have them on my shelf. Um, you know, a lot of us only hear about farm subsidy programs when um, presidential candidates have to go into Iowa before the Iowa caucus, and then they, yeah. they pander. Um, but you you write about farm subsidy programs that are administered by the USDA, and you talk about how 
they waste tens of billions of dollars annually and result in a host of environmental, dietary, and economic problems. And I'd love for you to expand on that thought for us. Help our listeners understand that issue. Sure. I mean, so we as, uh, you know, as citizens and taxpayers and voters may only, uh, you know, hear about this sort of pandering every four years when, as you know, people are going into Iowa to, to try to get people's votes. But there's a whole lot of pandering going on in the years between. Um, trust me about that. So um, it, it used to be the case uh, up until very recently, the most recent farm bill, that uh, direct farm subsidies, which are basically just direct payments to farmers for the act of farming, uh, were the norm. And subsidies really are just cash payments, you know, sort of like thank you for farming. Um, and they're unnecessary. Um what the uh, Congress uh, changed now is that the uh, subsidies come in the form of uh, crop insurance, and so the people's insurance is subsidized um, by the federal government. Picture your car insurance being subsidized. It's a, a similar idea. Um, and so as far as the environmental issues that come from that, if you're going to be subsidized, then you're going to obviously plant as much as you possibly can um, because there's a benefit in that. And so that's where overplanting and uh, you know sort of ripping up uh, wild lands and, and forests and whatnot to plant things like corn and soy, which are two of the major subsidized crops, come in. And as far as dietary issues go, um, I mean everyone's heard of high fructose corn syrup. Um, that is, uh, you know, I think came about largely as a result of of farm subsidies. We have an excess of corn, so what do we do with it? We turn it into ethanol for cars, which is uh, an inefficient uh, fuel. We turn it into high fructose corn syrup, which is a sweetener that's thrown in pretty much, uh, I won't say every, but many, many, many foods and beverages. Um, and then the economic issue, remember I said direct uh, subsidies uh, you know, were the norm, and I think those average something like 15 to 18,000, I'm sorry, million dollars a year. Um, Actually, let me correct that again, billion dollars a year. Um, yeah. And now under the crop insurance program, the Environmental Working Group, which is a watchdog uh, organization, a nonprofit in D.C., has estimated that uh, under crop insurance, those subsidies could balloon to $30 billion a year. Wow. And the thing that's amazing about that is that, you know, we have all kinds of money being spent on stopping childhood obesity, treating type 2 diabetes in this country. A lot of not just healthcare expenses going into that, but you know, a lot of nonprofits that are working on it. Even, you know, the first lady is working on let's let's move. And yet we continue to subsidize, you know, the the very crops that are being overproduced and contributing to some of those you know, health and lifestyle diseases. It's it's just um, very disjointed public policy, to put it kindly. Um, and so I, I'm really anxious to talk with you more about this and maybe some of the solutions as well. But we've got to take a quick commercial break. Don't go away, folks. When we come back, we have much more with Balin. So don't go away. We've got more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. I want to remind our listeners that Go Green Radio is just part of a larger organization. Um, It's part of the nonprofit organization that I started in 2002 called the Go Green Initiative. You can check us out at gogreeninitiative.org. We're an environmental education organization that helps schools across the country and across the world. We're actually in all 50 states and in 73 countries. We help schools reduce their environmental footprint in a number of ways, and we do that all at no cost to schools. And we're able to do that thanks to the to the generosity of our donors. If you'd like to help us out, you can click the donate button on gogreeninitiative.org and be part of our movement. And we thank you for that. Our guest today, in case you're just tuning in, is Balin Winnikin. And his brand new book is what we're discussing. It's called Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer, Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. And as I mentioned in segment one, uh, Balin is a lawyer and he's also an adjunct professor um, in the area of food law and public policy, and we're talking about how some of our our laws and regulations in our country are actually undercutting efforts to make our food system more sustainable. Valen, your book discusses how USDA marketing orders, checkoff programs, and purchases of surplus food, um, which apply to many of the sales of meats, dairy, and produce, benefit large incumbent producers um, at the expense of smaller competitors, consumers, and taxpayers. Now, this might be the first time that many of our listeners are learning about this, so help us understand this issue, Balin. Sure. Um, I think it's uh, people may be uh, learning about it for the first time, but almost everyone is familiar with these uh, programs or similar ones. 
for example, uh, if anyone's uh, who's seen the milk mustache campaign mm-hmm. or, or heard beef, it's what's for dinner or pork, the other white meat, mm-hmm. um, these all come out of the USDA's checkoff program. Essentially, uh, that takes some money out for marketing purposes from uh, sales of those products. Uh, marketing orders are things that work and have since, uh, since the New Deal era to restrict supply in some way in order to drive up prices for producers, try to make them more profitable. Um, and then purchases of surplus food, uh, this is one that actually has been in the news recently. Uh, the USDA uh, has said it, it will buy up uh, supplies of struggling, uh, you know, from struggling producers. So I think they said they're going to buy something like $20 million worth of eggs to prop up the egg industry. Um, and I think they bought up some, uh, some pork uh, and beef as well recently. Um, and really, these are just handouts to, to the industry uh, at a time when demand is low, when you know, if, you, if iPad sales are low, the government doesn't step in and say, you know what, we're going to buy $20 million worth of iPads and hand them out. Um, and it's just a, a ridiculous way for the government to you know, prop up large industries and, and to reward people who... Uh, you know, who didn't plan for market fluctuations that occur naturally um, and who are, you know, who, who should uh, have to tighten their, their belt uh, strings uh, in the same way that anyone else would when, when demand doesn't meet supply. Well, and, and as devil's advocate, you know, we can all survive without iPads, but, you know, do these programs tend to favor smaller you know, producers? In other words, are we keeping family farms in business by these sorts of, of surplus food purchases? Or are these really going to more of the big business, big food companies? Well, uh, just a quick note. I'm not sure that I could survive without my iPad. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that many people could. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, these are it's it's uh, this money is being directed towards uh, you know towards large uh, uh, entrenched industries, and so you know I think it would be uh, wrong and bad regardless of who it was favoring. But for the most part, these uh, these buyups are are you know benefiting uh, large food companies as opposed to uh, small family farmers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, talk to us about the impact on many smaller food producers producers who are used, um, uh, they have to comply with inexplicable government definitions for things like skim milk um, and some other food products. And and these definitions kind of run afoul of what we would consider dictionary definitions of the terms. Um, and some of these smaller food producers are forced to adopt bizarre terms for common foods like almond milk. Give us some examples and help us understand how this hurts small food producers. Sure. I'll lead off with an example that I have some involvement with. Uh, there's a small uh, creamery on the, the Florida Panhandle, uh, O'Cheesy Creamery. I think they have three employees. And they've been uh, you know, marketing a variety of uh, milk, uh, whole milk, cream, etc. for a while. And they started to market skim milk and yeah, they've uh, inspection and food safety. That was never an issue, um, and they were you know selling their uh, skim milk until one day an inspector came in and said, uh, you know, actually you don't add vitamin A to your skim milk. And they said, well, sure, yeah, of course we don't add anything to our milk because it's all natural, and our consumers, you know, they don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Florida said, uh, actually, you have to add vitamin A, or you can't call your skim milk skim milk. And <laughs> 
you know, the definition, it's been the same for hundreds of years in the dictionary. I think Adam Smith referred to skim milk, you know, back in the 1760s when he was writing. Um, but Florida did say that they could refer to their skim milk uh, instead as non-grade A milk product, natural milk vitamins removed. And that's in quotes. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Um, and and they're uh, they gave up on that ridiculous term, uh, and instead they've uh, Florida has said, you know what, you can actually refer to your skim milk that is just skim milk as quote imitation skim milk. Oh my gosh, imitation skim milk because it didn't add something that wasn't in it naturally. Unbelievable! Um, gosh, that just that blows my mind. Uh, you know, shifting gears just a smidge. Um, we were talking about food waste a little bit earlier in the show, but longtime listeners to Go Green Radio have heard us talk about this issue of food waste and that 40% of the food that we purchase in the U.S. goes to waste. Um, and oftentimes, the guests on Go Green Radio who talk about this issue are pleading with consumers to do things like buy only what they need and manage their family food supply to ensure that nothing is wasted. And that's all a good idea. But you're your book makes the point that food rules often promote food waste. And I'd like for you to talk to us about a specific instance in which Oakland, California, signed a new garbage contract that made it more expensive for city restaurant owners who had been composting food waste to do so and made it cheaper for them to instead fill up the city landfill with methane belching food waste. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's... uh it's it's as absurd as it sounds, and I, I can commend and agree with you and your uh, you know previous guests you cited who said that people need to do more uh, you know in their own lives to reduce food waste. That certainly is uh, is absolutely uh, uh, you know on point advice. Um, what people were doing in Oakland before this uh, new garbage contract was uh, in in many restaurants composting their waste. And uh, the city signed a contract with a waste management company, uh, and the contract essentially made it far cheaper for those same companies, the restaurants who had been composting their food, uh, scraps and, and whatnot, to simply throw it away. Um, and I think uh, I cite an example of one restaurateur who, uh, who said that his, uh, he was spending something like $7,000 more a year under the new contract than he was spending previously and certainly thousands more than he was spending for his, uh, his similar restaurant in San Francisco. So it wasn't as if you know, there were some hidden costs. Um, right. It was just a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous new rule. Well, and that's something that, you know, city staff and officials and, of course, the city council members who are adopting these RFPs and then awarding contracts for waste management uh, services need to take into account. You know, I want to talk about school lunches because a lot of our listeners are either students or work in schools, and that's because, you know, they follow the Go Green Initiative, um, the parent organization of, of Go Green Radio. So I think this next example is not going to be surprising to them in the least. You write that 89% of the fruits and vegetables mandated under recent school USDA National School Lunch Program reforms um, ends up as food lunch waste. Now, even before those latest reforms, the amount of food waste generated by the USDA National School Lunch Program each year could top over a billion dollars. Please help us understand this and go into greater detail about what's happening with our National School Lunch Program. Sure. Uh, so uh, 
there's a lot of, uh, and I address this in the book, there's a lot of shrillness on this issue with, uh, you know, sort of a lot of name calling and finger pointing and uh, uh, First Lady Michelle Obama championed uh, the reforms that uh, added more fruits and vegetables to school lunches. Um, and that has led to more food waste, but uh, Michelle Obama didn't create food waste in the school lunch program. Um, her proposals have increased that amount of food waste based on the research I, I cite and, and discuss in the book. But food waste is simply a problem in schools. Um, and it's you know, ultimately it has to be because how do you, you know, you have kids who eat kosher and who follow a paleo diet or who are vegan or who hate green beans or, you know, are, are uh, lactose intolerant. I mean, you can't design a school lunch program that's going to feed or please everyone. Um, and so what you end up with is this, this excess of, of food uh, that's going to be wasted. And I propose in the book that rather than uh, having the, the school lunch program be a way to generate waste, that it instead turn into a program to reduce waste. We have waste from all these other areas restaurants, caterers, grocery stores who are throwing away perfectly good food. We talked about that earlier. Um, why not use that food to feed kids in need and encourage uh, kids from families that uh, either want to or can afford to or some combination to make their own school lunches, to use leftovers from home uh, so that can combat food waste both at home and in the restaurant community and at caterers and grocers and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm imagining a lot of moms who are listening whose heads are exploding right now because, you know, I mean, the, the you know, for working moms that send their kids to school, you know, with lunch money, um, it's it's about keeping peace in the morning was already hectic enough getting everybody to school um, and to work on time. And it's hard. This is a hard issue. And and even this summer, I went to uh, the California um, Resource Recovery Association uh, uh, annual conference. And this is the the California arm of the National Recycling Coalition. And there was a huge discussion about commercial food waste and school lunch waste was a big part of it. And um, it is it is so difficult, both contractually, you know, and, and what it costs to get that food waste hauled away from schools and behaviorally to get, um, you know, solutions in place where families, you know, can be a part of the solution. And sometimes, and in some communities, families just can't because of, you know, multiple jobs and multiple uh, adults working in the household. It's a hard issue. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Balin. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. 
Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And in case you're just tuning in, our guest today is Balin Linekin, and he's got a brand new book out that I highly recommend because it's going to help enlighten you um, so much into how our food public policy impacts um, the food choices that we have and impacts um, the sustainability of our food system. Um, The book is called Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System more sustainable. So get on out there and get his book. You'll love it. Uh, Go Green Radio listeners are savvy to sustainable food issues, and this is a really fresh perspective on that issue. Balin, you know, it's hard enough to accept that some of the regulations that inhibit our food choices in restaurants and markets are on the books, but your book also touches on regulations that limit sustainable food practices at home very invasive. Um, Talk to us more about how cities and towns across the country prohibit people from raising fruits and vegetables in their front yards. Um, Some home gardeners have been faced with fines um, and even um, jail time for growing foods like tomatoes, while others have had their gardens ripped out by city employees. This is crazy. Talk to us about it. Yeah, it's uh, this is one of the more maddening rules that I talk about, and you know, so many people across the country, me included, have you know grow, are growing tomatoes and herbs and things like that uh, on their their balconies or in their front yards, and uh, it, it's the case that in many many cities across this country that that you just can't do that. That zoning or other rules uh, prohibit it. So I can I talk about this case in Miami Gardens, Florida, uh, which is still ongoing. Um, you know, it's amusing that the word gardens is in the name uh, yeah. of, the, of the city. Um, and what happens uh, is a couple have been growing for something like 15 years, had a, you know, a lovely uh, front yard garden. And they, I think they said that, you know, during the, the growing season, they only needed to buy something like 15% of their produce from the grocery store because they could supply the rest of it uh, themselves. I mean, that's spectacular. That's awesome. It is. Um, yeah, it was until uh, Miami Gardens passed a rule that said that you can't grow, I think it was vegetables, in the front yard. Um, and they were faced with uh, hundreds of dollars of fines per day if they didn't rip up the garden, which they were forced to do. But they also sued, and that case is still pending. Um, and the city is refusing to yield. Another example I cite in the book is a woman in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was out of work and was trying to grow her food in her front yard, uh, you know, she had uh, stevia and other things. She had actually a couple of fruit trees 
Um, the city actually came and physically ripped up and chopped down uh, her her garden. Um, and this is a woman again who was out of work and you know limited means and was trying to get by by feeding herself. And this is uh, if this doesn't make your blood boil, then I'm I'm not sure uh, that you you have a pulse. Well, and and that is just so invasive, as if there's something so repugnant about looking at vegetables growing in somebody's front yard that, you know, the neighbors or whoever would find that offensive or unseemly in some way, that just, uh, that's unbelievable. Um, And yet, here it is happening in America. Um, You know, one of the things when we talk about food issues, of course, you know, there are so many issues, food waste and, um, you know, GMOs, we talk about all that stuff on Go Green Radio. But um, I I tend to kind of lean towards the the bleeding heart side of food issues, and I think about hunger. I think about hungry people and children, homeless people in America. We've been fighting a quote-unquote war on poverty for over five decades, and yet we still have hungry people and especially you know hungry children in America. Talk to us about how some cities around the country are prohibiting people from sharing food with the homeless and less fortunate, because this really... Um, really gets under my skin this is unbelievable yeah this is my i mean if if all things being equal if there is one rule that i discuss in this book that could simply be uh you know wiped off the face of this country and of the earth it would be bans on sharing food with the homeless and those in need and uh, somehow in cities across this country and, and big cities orlando philadelphia las vegas houston dallas um, and that's certainly not an exhaustive list. That's just the ones that uh, I counted on five fingers. Um, you're, you're actually banned from sharing food with the homeless and less fortunate. Actually, New York City, this one, uh, there's a, a slight bit of, uh, you know, sort of amusement to this one. Uh, under Mayor Bloomberg, de- uh, denied people the right to share food with people uh, in city shelters because the uh, city couldn't assess the uh, salt, fat, or calorie content oh of my the gosh. food. <laughs> oh, my Which, gosh. Which um, is just so outrageous. Um, but it's, you know, these rules, uh, and there have been lawsuits. Uh, the ACLU of Nevada sued and overturned uh, Las Vegas' ban and sued Philadelphia and, and got uh, that city to backtrack. Uh, there's an ongoing uh, lawsuit, I think, in Orlando, uh, group uh, the members of the group Food Not Bombs who mm-hmm. um, are anti-war and believe that sharing food is, is part of their mission in life um, have actually been arrested and fined for sharing food with people. Uh, and I interview a guy, Jay Hamburger, who's working in Houston, and he's been uh, he's known as the Egg Man. He started off by sharing mm-hmm. a few dozen eggs with those uh, those in need there, um, and he's you know graduated to serving meals uh, on a regular basis there. Um, and he's gotten tens of thousands of signatures to try to get that city to overturn its ban. Uh, but the mayor and, and most of the city council and, and even uh, advocates for the homeless have been fighting him. Well, let me ask you this. Do these cities have rules like this in place because they have faced lawsuits? You know, did somebody get food poisoning and they sued the city? I mean, where did all this, you know, hyper rulemaking come from? There are no lawsuits uh, claiming that anyone has uh, has ever been sickened by food that uh, was handed out, and there actually are protections for people who 
uh, who do in good faith give out food. No one's protected if they hand out food that they know or should know is, you know, is poison, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a good law that I actually refer to in the book. Um, you know, it, preventing people from poisoning other people. That's, that's a okay in my book. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but Jay Hamburger talks about, uh, in Houston, how the city was trying to, uh, build a new soccer stadium downtown and, uh, you know, people were feeding the homeless in that area, and so they, you know, they effectively wanted to spruce up and gentrify the neighborhood, and so that that he thinks that's why the the city moved in that case. It's not a case of uh, you know public health or public safety. Um, Hamburger talks about how littering is terrible, and and he neither condones it nor practices it, um, but he expects that the city will provide adequate uh, you know trash cans and whatnot in the same way they would for people who are, say, attending a sporting event or concert. Absolutely. You know, we only have a couple of minutes left in the show, but I want to spend some time letting you talk to our listeners about what they can do to get involved and help bring about change to our food public policy. Sometimes it feels like it's so much bigger than any of us, and we don't know how to, to plug into the issue. Talk to us about how that can be done. Well, I mean, we've talked uh, before about how people can, for example, uh, cut down on food waste, and your guests had talked about that before you noted, um, you know, by making particular choices at home. And, you know, the brown bagging it, uh, you noted that there are lots of busy moms. Um, you know, there, uh, at some percentage of uh, homes have two parents, and frankly, I was taught uh, or forced, compelled uh, as a mm-hmm. kid to make my own lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, today I have a love of cooking, and was it because I made uh, peanut butter and jelly on graham crackers for my lunch. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, but I did. And so, you know, we can involve, uh, you know, members of our family in, in helping to uh, make changes at home. On a sort of broader public policy level, I think that uh, many people are, are skeptical uh, when it comes to loosening rules. They, you know, they immediately think, oh, my God, we're going to be in danger. And I think that many of the examples that I cite, particularly the food safety ones, mm-hmm. should show that food safety rules are counterproductive or don't make us any safer. It's uh, true. And you do a great job of outlining that in the book. I wish we had so much more time to stay with you, Balaam, but we have reached the end of this episode of Go Green Radio. I want everybody to get out there and get his book, Biting the Hands That Feed Us. And I want to thank Balin for joining us. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.